Welcome to In Good Company on NTS Radio, a monthly show for working women with me, Atega Uagba. If you're new to the show, a quick intro. I'm the founder of Women Who, which is a London-based community for creative working women. And I'm also the author of Little Black Book, a modern career guide for working women, which you can find on Amazon or at all good bookstores. This podcast is all about providing you with the practical advice and fresh ideas that will help you work better aided and abetted by some of the smart, successful, creative women I know. New episodes are released monthly, and you can listen to them on NTS or download them via iTunes. So if you're not already, subscribe now to make sure you get them straight to your phone. On today's show, I'm talking to Rennie Edo-Lodge, an award-winning freelance journalist and author of the much-lauded Sunday Times bestseller, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. Few books published last year were as impactful or as talked about as Rennie's. It sparked a national conversation about race, and since publication, it's received a steady stream of praise and accolades, as well as reaching the Sunday Times bestseller list. It was also chosen as the Foil's non-fiction book of the year, long-listed for the Bailey Gifford Prize, and shortlisted for the Books in My Bag Reader's Award for non-fiction. The paperback version, which includes an additional chapter addressing the response the book received, was published just a few days ago on March the 8th. Whilst the content of Rennie's book is of huge importance, what I really wanted to talk to her about today is the business of being a writer and her career experiences to date, because that's something few people have really asked her about. But in many ways, her experiences as a young black journalist reaching the heights she has are absolutely intertwined with the issues of race, gender and feminism that the book covers. Also, on today's segment of Ask Otega, we hear from someone who's considering quitting their job to move back home with their parents so that they can pivot into a career that they really love. First up, here's my conversation with Rennie. For context, we spoke a few days after she appeared in conversation with the author Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie at the Royal Festival Hall, where they talked about today's most pressing cultural issues. That was the first time that we'd met, so she was very warm, friendly, relaxed, funny. She came across to me as somebody who wore her success really lightly, sort of like mm. 10 years deep into it. And I was like, yeah, goals. That's, mm. Yeah, I <laughs> that's know. That's goals for me. Like, <laughs> I want to be able to wear, you know, the the adulation lightly and, you know, receive people with loads of warmth. And she really, she was, she was awesome. And I thought the conversation was, you know, I felt like the conversation was very uh, quite an intimate one. It, it was lots of things that I would just want to ask her anyway as mm. a curious person and a journalist and a person who writes about race. And it just happened to be in front of 2,500 people. And she actually did roll up an hour late. So there was no, like, in-depth discussion that we had before going on stage. And she even said, like, I don't like things to be that very rehearsed. So it was just, it was very natural, I think. I thought the two of you had great chemistry. And I felt like it seemed, it was a great pairing to have the two of you together someone who has just had one book out although it's been phenomenally successful and someone who like you say has kind of 10 years 15 years deep into this whole process Mm. um I love that you guys got a standing ovation as you walked out before you'd even said anything which I think is testament to how I mean there was a real like being in the audience there was a real buzz both before and afterwards um how did you go about preparing for that interview um I just reread her books pretty much 
And then I had some themes I wanted to touch on. And then like on the day, like the morning of, I came back from the gym really early in the morning and I was like sat down and I was like, okay, better just prep some questions just in case there's a lot in the conversation. That was pretty much it. But I started just rereading her books um, maybe about a month in advance, mm. nipped to the shop and picked up Purple Hibiscus, which I hadn't read, mm. and also The Thing Around Your Neck, which I hadn't read. That's the only one that I haven't read, actually. Like the short story collection. Yeah. It's really good. Yeah. I think that one was quite early on in her writing career. So you, mm. that's when you start to see the same inklings of the same themes coming through her work again and again. I also started to reread Americana, which was the first book of hers I read. I think it's, it's a lot of people's entry point into her writing. Mm. And I got about halfway through. Uh, she's a... She's a fiction author who I think is a superb at character development. Yeah. In my in my humble opinion. So um and I think that she says so much about the ways of the world through the development of her characters. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that people turned up to the South Bank event speak looking to hear about the overlaps between our our, our work, you know. I'm somebody who as a, writes a lot externally about issues. She's somebody who writes who weaves them into fiction. Mm. But if I was having another public conversation with her, I would talk a little bit more about the process of writing fiction. I mean, I'm probably never going to do it, but I think that she's one of the best going, one of the best living fiction writers today. So, Absolutely. Um, it would be fascinating. You know, I think I, I saw an interview where she sort of said, you know, she likes to get, her know, get to know her characters and that's so evident in her work. I think the thing I feel when I read her fiction writing is almost that I can imagine their lives beyond the sort of, the book, which I think is a sign of a really well-developed character, like mm. I can kind of think, okay, once this book, you know, on page 300 has ended, I go on thinking about what, you know, if Emily might have gone on to do with the rest of her life, which I think is quite rare with fiction writers. Like often you just kind of close the page and you're like, okay, that's it. But her characters really linger with you. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, for me, her, my favourite book of hers is Half of Yellow Sun, um, because I th- think what she can do in an expert way that a lot of other writers try to do and they fail is just weave the broader political situation mm. into the intimacies of people's lives mm-hmm. in such a way that really hits you. You know, people say fiction is a great vehicle for empathy and her work totally does that, totally does that. And, you know, I get sent a lot of books and I read a lot of fiction and a lot of people try it and they don't succeed. So for those of those of you listening who weren't in attendance um, at the South Bank Centre on Saturday night, something that Chimamanda said is that she isn't on social media because otherwise how would she find the time to write, which seems pretty obvious. Um, and she, It seemed that she feels social media gets in the way and it's something I've heard her say before and I've mm. heard also writers like Zadie Smith say in interviews and at events as well. And she, I think she like she advised you to come off it, mm. essentially, even though it was sort of quite, quite joking. Um, and I did find myself thinking, how realistic is that for writers and creatives who are on the come up now as opposed to sort of 10 years ago? What did you think of that? I mean, I totally, I agree with her on that, 100%. For me, I think social media has been a instrumental part of getting my voice heard. But now my voice is heard in forums outside of social media. Um, I can't use it in the same way I once did. I think that that's... So I have to sort of recognise the position that I'm in now. And I think anybody who's been following me on Twitter over the last five years knows that I don't use it the same way I did in 2012. So how has the way that you used it changed? Um, I used to use it to have conversations and I used to be part of communities on Twitter and I'm less so now. Why is that? Well, hmm. I think the reason being that 
I'm just way busier, <laughs> like so busy mm. since the book came. Actually, no. As soon as I got the deal and started to go deep into research and writing, I had to come off mm -hmm. because um, I couldn't invest time into keeping up those communities. And I still like adore loads of the people I have met on Twitter over the years. And I see them just face to face now. I can't um, keep up with the same sort of like water cooler conversation, I think it is, um, especially for those of us who work from home. Like I've been working from home for four years. So now I just sort of see them in real life to do that. And then also I think that being somebody who's seen it as a voice on issues, my tweets just hold far more weight than they once did. And so um, I have the privilege of being able to really think through what I want to say publicly through my writing. Um, and so I don't want to say anything um, off the top of my head um, because I don't have to anymore. I don't have to. Um, I can say, I can really think through what I want to say and then have it published. <laughs> Mm. And not everybody gets that opportunity. So since I have it, I would like to use it responsibly. And I think you sometimes you see writers get in trouble when they are just shooting things off off the top of their head um, and not really thinking through it. The Internet has become a place where lots of people are throwing around ill-informed opinions with like the strength <laughs> and the um, certainty of somebody who thought about it for five, ten years. Absolutely. And I'm not going to lie to you and be like, oh, my thoughts on the NHS are as considered as my thoughts on structural racism because mm. there's one I've been thinking about for the majority of my adult life and one I haven't. And I think the position that I'm in now as a person who is listened to is that my ill-informed opinions will carry as much weight as my very considered opinions. Well, that's... So I'm not going to say the dumb ones in the public. You yeah, know? no, thinking about the responsibility mm. of your position, your platform, I think is really important. Something a lot of people don't do I, I did see something that you tweeted the other day which really made me think you tweeted an article uh from the ft which i think the headline was uh the speaker's circuit is where original thinkers go to die i couldn't agree with this more and i was really curious as to why you kind of resonated enough with that article to tweet it i'm asked to speak all the time and i will happily go off and do an info conversation about my book or speak about it in some depth um with a person in a sort of conversation format. But I'm also asked to give half an hour keynotes, go and be a talker, talking head on television, speak here, speak there. And I think the reason I was able to write the book I, I wrote is because I wasn't out, every, out here everywhere blabbing my opinions, you know? Mm. I was thinking and writing and walking around and thinking a bit more and then doing some research and fact-checking and, and things like that. And I don't want the rest of my life to be speaking publicly about the conclusions I drew at one point in my life, you know? So I, I love thinking and I love learning. And I love to be challenged. And when you are a person whose opinions are given a lot of weight, but people very rarely challenge you, actually. Like, you might yeah. get people who challenge you um, from a different political, political, like, ideology. Fine, but it sort of gets to a bit of a dead end. But in terms of, like, critical challenges, it doesn't happen often. So and that's uh, frustrating to me. It's it's I think intensely boring for me to go around places where people like it's nice to be agreed with. Mm. It's nice to have people love your work, but it, it's not intellectually. It's not feeding me intellectually. Um, so there's that. And also. But it's incredibly lucrative. That's how a lot of writers make their living. Indeed. The circuit. And someone with your profile could 
do that. So I'm quite, I feel, I mean, it's obviously a sign of your integrity and the fact that you are prepared to do the work and want to work on your craft and do the thinking, which I really, really admire. But I'm, I guess I'm surprised that that's something that you, you know, have such strong feelings about that you've kind of decided to put it to one side. Another thing that has never appealed to me is being seen as the most knowledgeable person in the room. That's never appealed to me. Um, the idea of giving a keynote doesn't appeal to me. The idea of doing a TED talk doesn't appeal to me. I love to write. Mm. All I've ever wanted to do was write for a living. I'm there now. Mm. And I feel like I have to fight for that time, actually. Um, I think that if you write about something that's seen as a hot political issue, then people think that you now are the advocate for it and all you ever want to do is argue in the favour of it. But I want to continue to, to write. So I don't, I don't begrudge anybody who wants to make their living from speaking. I recognise there's money to be made from it. Mm. And I will continue to do speaking events here, there and everywhere where when I'm truly interested and excited about um, the the subject matter or the person I'm talking to you know that was what that event was last Saturday as well yeah. but it doesn't excite me to go around and be nodded to and listened to and being tre treated like the most challenging person in the room I want to be challenged I would do a speaking tour of a country if I'm trying to get people to read the book. That's about it. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I want to talk about the business of being a writer, actually, because another event that you did, uh, the Tate, a few months ago, you mentioned something and, it, you know, it wasn't really the sort of, the focus of the event wasn't about this, but it definitely stuck with me. You talked about how getting a book deal was something that gave you the space and the freedom to pursue your work and it wasn't something that you'd had before could you elaborate a bit on that yeah sure so I think that because I've written about something that is seen as a hot political issue right now everyone wants to talk to me about the content but nobody ever wants to talk about the form of writing and I and I am a writer like that's what I love to do and I love to think and and write and read and you need space and you need money to do that you need time you need to buy the time, right? And when I was freelancing, you know, I went freelance, um, gosh, early 2014. So where were you before that? Just adminning, admin jobs in various... I was trying to get into, like, the third sector, like campaigning mm -hmm. and charities, but mm -hmm. it wasn't happening for me. Okay. And the only jobs I could really get were, like, three-month, six-month campaign internships. Mm -hmm. And so were you writing on the side? Yeah, I was. I okay. was. Well, I'd been writing on the side since I was at university, you know, okay. um, since I was about 19, mm -hmm. I'd been sort of writing on my own website, on my own blog. Mm -hmm. So then I graduated, didn't really do anything that was interesting, did some internships that never led to jobs. And then the after the final one, I was like, I'm just going to take the plunge and go freelance because mm -hmm. I can't be hanging around the, the bottom rungs of the ladder. There was a job lined up for me, apparently, at one organisation, but then they ran out of money. So okay. <laughs> I was just like, well, I'm just going to do my thing, really. And what I want to talk about the economics of being a freelance writer, because mm. I think a lot of people talk about it and it's like, oh, you're your own boss and you get to work from home. But it's hard. It's gruelling. Mm. It's difficult to make money. And when you, even when you do make that money, it's difficult to get paid. Um, and you wrote an incredibly honest article last Christmas about living in income poverty in a previous Christmas where money had been very tight. And I was rereading that last night and I found it very moving. And like, which Christmas was that? When was that? Oh, gosh. I think maybe 2015 or... So recently? Yeah. I mean, I was basically in income poverty until I got the book deal, really. And then, you know, because 
freelance writing isn't very lucrative. Mm-hmm. I was seen as somebody who who was simply expendable, and I think that this is a massive problem in journalism. What's interesting is watching the publications that treated me as expendable come around and treat me as valuable now that the books oh, out. Oh, I can imagine. <laughs> I can imagine. Does yeah. that, is that quite sort of sweet? I just take it all with a pinch of salt, really. Mm. Like, I'll take your money, but mm. I'm not impressed, guys. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I can um, Yeah, so there's really no... There's very little money in it. But I really wanted to write about race and try and, like, get something critical in Britain off the ground so I was like almost a martyr about it for quite a few years I was like well I'll reduce my income down to nothing it doesn't really matter because I really want to get this off the ground and I was writing about what I was happy writing about mm. it was difficult to to pitch sometimes people weren't really interested in what I wanted to write about uh, I ended up getting my best pay and best um articles through um trade magazines so i did quite a lot of freelancing through this magazine called inside housing mm-hmm. and actually the chapter in the book on class and race is built around an article i wrote about them for uh, wrote for them f- about housing in haringey and race mm. a case study if you will that was really beneficial to me but in terms of like more mainstream media that wasn't trade um i was pitching it wasn't going 100 percent well and also what i was being commissioned was stuff that was asking me to be kind of like a reactionary black woman it was never you get to set the agenda on this. oh yeah like, I've had those come my way yeah like I, a, a, a middle-aged white man mm-hmm. um can set the agenda on things but mm-hmm. somebody like me had to react to something and constantly pay attention to stuff that people were mad about so mm-hmm. that you could then perform the anger a hot take and then turn it in in five hours mm-hmm. exactly. I was once asked to write an angry response to the fact that let me remember this correctly. Tom Jones had speculated that maybe he might have sort of that he might be partly black, that he might have black blood in him. Mm. Um, and I was sort of told to react really angrily to it. And then actually, when I read, went back and read the original source article of what he'd said, and I can't remember the exact in, in and outs, but it just wasn't that offensive. And mm. it just it sounded like a sort of fairly reasonable thing. I think there had been questions about his parentage, something like that. And I declined to write it. But I just remember, and then I saw somebody else write it, and I just yeah, thought, they'll move oh, on. God, yeah. it's expendable. Basically, exactly. you look for somebody to pour, perform anger for them, and exactly. it's like I'm angry about some things, but I can't be doing it. Like yeah. I can't keep up with every dumb shit that yeah. somebody does. Yeah, exactly. Or like I'm not saying that Tom Jones was being dumb in that situation. No, no, no. But the thing is, it's it's all relative as <laughs> well. It's like if you if you sort of hit the anger button at level ten over. Mm. Tom Jones making, I don't know, maybe an insensitively worded comment, which I don't even think it was. And also, then, what, you know, what level is left to be angry at something that Donald Trump says? Like, mm-hmm. You have to have all these things in proportion, but that Absolutely. never happens with hot takes. So, I mean, did you ever consider pursuing a different career path? Because- I was on the verge of giving up all the time. Okay. <laughs> like, all the time. You know, I was in income poverty. Like, I've only really got out of it, like, since the book came out. You know, people ask me for advice all the time, like, what to do before going freelance. I'm like, maybe have some savings, <laughs> you know? Because yep. I didn't, but I wasn't even in the position to build up some savings before I went freelance. Mm. So I'm just, like, getting used to having money. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, oh, like, guess I could go on holiday. No, I mean, it's brilliant. Nice. <laughs> it's brilliant that you're talking about that because I think there's a real myth um, and misconception about uh, even being a published author. And I mm. think, you know, obviously getting a book deal has done well for you. But I also think to an extent it's because your book has done really well because not, not even all published authors do totally. that well out of there. And obviously I know that your book deal 
came, and I think everyone knows this, that your book deal came as a result of a specific blog post of the same name that you published in 2014. But can you actually talk me through how it is that you went from blog post to book deal? Like, did you okay. approach Boomsley? Did they approach you? Did you get an agent first? Like, mm. just talk me through it all. Okay, so it's actually a, a convoluted process. I wrote that blog post that went viral. Mm -hmm. And that blog post was because I was involved in activism and had been for some time and was involved in feminist activism at that time and was attempted to try and talk to white feminists about race. <laughs> and it was honestly like running at a brick wall repeatedly and just getting bruised and battered. Mm. Um, so I wrote that because I was so, I felt it deeply. I was like, I'm giving up here. That went viral. As a result of that going viral, a couple of months later, the Guardian newspaper was doing this like 30 under 30 in digital media list. Mm -hmm. And they put me on it alongside like Tavi Jennison mm, okay. <laughs> and a bunch of other people doing interesting things like YouTubers and this and that. After that, my writing started to get a bit of a following, a bit of attention. Uh, editor at the New York Times just started to randomly follow me on Twitter.com. By the end of the year... After seeing some of my tweets where I was on the bus, I remember I was on the bus going to my mum's house and I was tweeting about like house prices. I was like, oh, blah, blah. I love London. I'm never going to be able to afford a house here. Anyway, he just like emailed me being like, oh, do you want to write about this about the new for the New York Times? So I'm like, OK. Yes, please. <laughs> so I wrote that article just basically being like, oh, you know, I'm from London. I wouldn't be able to afford a house here. I'm a young person, blah, blah, blah. Then somebody got in contact and was like, oh, uh, I've just read your article. I see that you're London-based. I'm a literary agent. Have you ever thought about writing a book? Now, this person had didn't even know about that initial blog post that happened at the beginning of that year. Um, so then I met up with him. I said to him, well, this is what I want to write about. He didn't know about the blog post. We discussed it back and forth, put a proposal together. What did you want to write about? Was it about race? Was it the book? Yes. Okay, right. I mean, of course it was, yeah, yeah, because okay. that was a factor of everything I was writing yeah. as a freelancer, yeah. everything I was writing. Yeah. And if I ever wrote anything that wasn't about race, it was because somebody wanted me to. Yeah, yeah. Not because I wanted to, mm -hmm. but I just needed the money. Mm. <laughs> so we put the proposal together and then in a few months, you know, it was just quite a normal process of getting an agent, the agent going around publishing houses and saying, are you interested in this? Blah, blah, blah. And okay. then Bloomsbury liked the idea. Okay. So it wasn't like Bloomsbury immediately acquired um, a book from me based on the blog post. Mm. It was, that was between the blog post and Bloomsbury, um, like, buying the idea of the book of me was a year. And also, I think that what people think is that I had an idea for a book mm. and went to an agent. Mm. No. This wasn't, oh, an idea for a book that I quite fancy write about race. This was like, this is this thing that I am doing my activism around for, like, at that point, it would have been five years, mm. um, involved in various groups, mm. um, trying to challenge stuff right mm. in the media in culture in politics and so when the opportunity came round to write a book there was no other thing that I was going to write about that mm. like I believed like I literally when I look back you know I'm 28 now the blog started when I was 20 like it's been tunnel vision like, mm. for my entire adult life mm. I have it's been tunnel vision on attempting to try and advance this narrative you know yeah, so if it was you were like, going to write about something it was going to be it was going to be that, that. no question i know? love that kind of steady focus though um i actually went back and read the bookseller press release um when you know your, your book was acquired when it was announced i went back and read it and that was may 2015 mm. um and it's just it's funny and almost quite quaint re reading it now because i just think gosh did they know how big this book was going to be did you have any idea did you think it was going to have as much of an impact as it has? I didn't have any expectations for 
for what was going to happen after publication. But I can tell you that I met with, there was just two publishing companies interested in um, my proposal, which I think is pretty amazing for a first time author. But on reflection, it's it's also a little disappointing. (laughs) But when I met with um, Bloomsbury, my editor, Alexa, she blew me away. You know, like, I mean, it's frank. It's frankly a relationship, right? Absolutely. With you, b- between you and your publishing house. Mm-hmm. And Alexa was like, we want you, basically. Like, yeah. she took me to this room and the editor-in-chief of Bloomsbury was in there. Like, literally eight people smiling at me. All their senior <laughs> staff were like... Being like, yes, we are, we are so interested in this. Like, yeah. I remember just like sat in their reception, and it was all a bit interesting and quaint for me. And she was like, "You've blown us all away. Like, this proposal has made us all stop in our tracks." Blah 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 blah. Like, so I went to that meeting and I came out of it. How did you feel? Well, I think from the perspective of somebody who'd been quite like beaten and battered by the freelance life. Yeah, I remember just calling my boyfriend and being like, "This is this is weird." You yeah. know, like, I went to M and S and I bought some. Percy Pigs afterwards oh to celebrate. God, you're so British. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, I just knew from then that whatever happened with this book, like Bloomsbury were 100% on board with it. Like mm. that I couldn't have asked for a better team to launch it into the world on my behalf. Yeah. Because I think that we forget when we look at book spines, you'll see the author's name, but then that little logo is the team who is bringing it to the world. And yeah. I mean, they were amazing, excellent. I didn't know what was going to happen post-publication I didn't really have any expectations because I think with my tunnel vision I was just kind of like you're just trying to get the book out by publication day I was like well job done yeah (laughs) yeah yeah but there's a lot of other forces that go into it once you've written that final draft and sent it off then it's like this whole like machine Mm -hmm. kicks into place I'm quite curious and I think it's it's great to hear that you've had that kind of support around you because Mm. you have received an extraordinary amount of media attention Mm. over the past year um both positive and negative um and i want to understand how like how have you found that how are you dealing with that Hmm. media attention Mm. i think i sometimes forget about it until like people recognize me in the street and i think that that's that media process of the book did make me feel a little bit detached from the work that i had been so um obsessed with for the the majority of my adulthood why detached you know i think it's just something very personal like it was me feeling and saying things externally about the world, but it's very personal. Like yeah. my thoughts and feelings and research was very personal. And suddenly I'm I'm in the hot seat for it a lot. Mm. Even um even interviews that are largely benign, I'm in the hot seat for it. Um yeah, it's just been it's been an odd process. I also because as a journalist who has then gone on to do be doing non fiction you're the person who's usually looking at the person who's got yeah, the attention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's kind of like odd to then have the attention on you. Mm. Um, and I, to be on the other side of like yeah. the interviewing table. I was wondering how, whether that would be sort of quite an odd thing for you because you must want to be the one asking the questions and investigating and probing and to constantly, I think it's quite common for journalists who kind of suddenly become the story themselves. I think that must be quite an odd sensation. Can we talk about... The FAQ section of your website. Oh, because yes. Because it's business. one of my favourite things on the internet. And I've <laughs> sent it to, I'd say, about at least five or six freelance friends of mine. And I mm. know like another writer who is essentially, I think she's linked to the FAQ section of your website on her website. Mm. Um, 
And I think it's perfect because it, it just so perfectly encapsulates a lot of the problems that one faces as a freelance writer or freelance anything. So for anyone listening who hasn't been on this, and I might include it in the show notes, um, but in response to, you know, being asked to write for free, Rennie writes, I'm self-employed and consider it insulting to be asked to work for free. Please bear this in mind before you get in touch. And then there's a similar response to people asking to pick your brain. I want to understand what made you put that up. Why did you have to put that up? So I think this also like links quite into me feeling a little detached from the book sometimes after the media coverage, which is um, once all of that happens, um, an, an awful lot of people, oh, they are fundamentally excited about your work. That's why they're doing it. And ultimately, as a writer, that's what you want. You want people to be excited by your work. But a byproduct of that, which is less desirable, is an entitlement over your time. And I've always been a person who's very boundaried. Like that's it's so important to me and my well-being to um, be boundaried and I'm quite introverted and I like my own time and you know even when I was freelancing it was happening but on a lot much lower scale but since the book came out I have been absolutely deluged with requests on my time um, free or paid and it's hard because every time particularly when I'm asked to write for free, it feels like a violation of boundaries that I've made very clear. <laughs> ask you yes. to write for free? Yes, they do. You fucking kidding me? Yeah. It's like, I feel like they're boundaries that I've made very clear. And I th- kind of feel like sometimes when people get in touch, every- everyone thinks they're special, right? So they're mm. like, oh, well, sure. For us. Yeah, for us. And I'm like, can you, like, so that whole FAQ question, not just to do with brain picking or writing, but also can you help with my dissertation or, you know, where do I go for media requests and stuff? Like, I feel like ugh, I, I I put a lot of thought into that FAQ section because I sat down and I was like, okay, what is it about some of these requests that are annoying me? And actually it's and not just annoying. wasting your time. Yeah, actually it's not just annoying. It feels like a violation sometimes. So I was like, let me just sit down and just do an all-encompassing like FAQ that's the answer that I would just be typing out to people over and over again. Mm. Um, this is how to approach me. Yeah, I can't. Yeah, this is how to approach me. Like, I can't help you with your dissertation. Like, mm. I get four requests a month, perhaps. Mm. I can't do this media request. I'm usually working a long term project. I ain't at home twiddling my fingers waiting for you, waiting for you to call. We mm. want you, Benny. Like, so it's been, it's been difficult. I think like that whole FAQ question is about my my boundaries, and I just please anybody listening please listen that's all <laughs> please please pay attention to them um i'm tempted to steal it from my own website actually because please i do think, copy I think, and paste i think I, I really will but i think one of the things that is quite interesting to me is because of the what you write and the topic of your book and because there is an element of social good to it like what you are doing is good for society i think that means that people then feel more entitled to your time as opposed to say, I don't know, if you're writing about like business or something, because what you're doing is inherently good, I think people then feel like almost like your time is like a charity. Yes, absolutely. And I think that, you know, part of that means that the work has done its job. And also, I think it's, I, I write in first person as well. Mm. So, and I've experienced this with literature. You really feel like the person is speaking to you. What I've experienced since the book came out is people responding as though I've written them a personal letter. And that's incredible, but it's not possible for me to respond in the form of a personal letter to everyone. Yeah. Like after the, when the Guardian extracted the book uh, around the time it was published, I still had a contact page on my website, you know, for freelance work. I had to close it. Yeah. <laughs> I had to close it because I was getting so many responses, all overwhelmingly positive. I want to say this, this wasn't trolling. Mm. And you know, trolling doesn't bother me. <laughs> 
I don't care. Mm. What I what cuts me up is not being able to fulfill the expectations of the people who love and support my work, but I can't because I'm a person with finite time and also long long term projects that I want to um, fulfill. And when when you make that demand of me, um, just bear in mind that there are loads of other people making that demand yeah. and, and if I've got to if I reply to one I've got to reply to all and then that book that, the next book that you want you, ain't gonna happen you could spend <laughs> your entire I'm sure you could spend your entire time nine till five nine till seven responding mm. to all the emails and requests that you get like day in day out yeah. and, but then where would you have time to do the actual work so. yeah and I think that like over this last year I felt the expectations have like knocked me for six in terms of like uh, it's um, incredible and it's amazing, but it's knocked me for six. And I was just reading this article about uh, boundaries this morning that actually spurred me on to go off and download a book on Kindle about boundaries. And one thing that um, the writer said when quoting this book was, you know, well, once you set your boundaries, people will get up upset and irritated and disappointed by you and you'll feel guilty for that. But you've got to remember you've got to ask yourself why you're feeling that guilt because if you're feeling guilty because you've done something wrong mm. like you're feeling guilty because you know you've treated somebody badly that's fair feel the guilt but if you're feeling guilty because you're because basically somebody wants something from you that you're not able to give you ha actually haven't done anything wrong there but I've got to set those boundaries because I love to write and I love to think and stuff and in order to I have to fight for that time, basically. I have to fight for that time. I want to be 10 years in deep with five books. Mm. And um, that means setting boundaries to do so. Yeah. Um, I want to move slightly onto a different topic. Well, I mean, it's it's at the core of what you've done, really, which is about race. But I want to talk specifically about race in the workplace. In your book, and you write, structural racism is dozens or hundreds or thousands of people with the same biases joining together to make one organisation and acting accordingly. It's an impenetrably white workplace culture set by those people where anyone who falls outside of the culture must conform or face failure. And obviously, we know that journalism and the media and writing and being a published author, that is an industry and a, a space incredibly dominated by white people with very few black voices. And you obviously talked earlier about some of your kind of earlier run-ins with white feminism, but I wanted to know a bit more about what your experiences as a young black woman in that space have been like? I think on reflection, I wasn't very successful. Uh, yeah, I don't think I was a very successful freelance journalist. I mean, uh, how do we define success? Well, I wasn't really earning enough money to live on. That's the one important one. And I think that that's a fair I think measure that's of success. I do as well. Although, you know, then again, with, with income inequality and whatnot, there are people who work every waking hour of the day and still aren't earning enough money to live on. Mm -hmm. um, but let's just say as a writer, I wasn't, nobody was paying me the money that suggested that I was a valuable writer until the book came out. Um, and I don't know if that's just to do with me or to do with journalism in general. Or to do with what you were writing mm -hmm. about. I was never, let's say, invited into the offices of a place to freelance, which I know that many of my peers have been. That never was. That never happened for me. Actually, not my peers, my white peers. Yeah, I was about <laughs> to say. Like, do you mean your white peers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was never invited into the. I never got that so and so dot freelance whatever mm. email. Um, that was a 
never really on the cards for me. And then sometimes I would look at my white peers and they'd be out like eating luscious meals and going on holiday. And I knew that they were freelance journalists too. And I was like, how are they affording this? Mm. And then I sort of realised, oh, they must be getting paid more. (laughs) They must be getting paid more. But because I never worked in an office, I didn't really experience the hard edge of some of those things I write about in the book, at least not in journalism. Mm. But in terms of like the priorities of the publications I was working with, it showed. Yeah, it definitely showed. You talked about the fact that, I think you talked about an internship you did where you're one of the few black paces, I think possibly a a newspaper. Mm. Um, And the fact that in majority white workplaces, often the only black or brown faces are people doing the catering or the cleaning. And it's something I felt so deeply uncomfortable with because when I worked in advertising that, you know, we had the same thing. There were support staff who were basically invisible to my colleagues and... I remember just thinking, just the way they treated them, I remember just thinking, God, if I put on a cleaner's outfit and walk past you, the way, like your whole body language towards me would change. It's mm. like the basic thing of like holding a door open, saying thank you to the lady who's picked up your mug every day for the past, you know, three months and actually just acknowledge them, their humanity. Um, I don't know, it's just something that, that really sort of stood out for me when I was reading that, that bit of the book. Um, and so, something else actually as well, you talk about a name bias study mm-hmm. in the book um and actually can you explain what name bias is for anyone listening okay so the department for work and pensions in 2009 so this is some time ago but it's the most recent government study on it sent out i think 2000 cvs some with white british sounding names some with african and asian sounding names and um what they found on the results about oh, by the way with all of these cvs there was a like for like comparison of white british person and african and, or asian sounding name person um, similar qualifications and experience for wh- whichever job mm. they applied for. And what they found was um, white people were far more likely to be called to interview than people with African or Asian sounding names. There was no real discrepancy between white British sounding names and African and Asian sounding names apart from the names. Mm. You know, qualifications were similar, experience was similar, etc., etc. I remember when I graduated and could not find a job, going to the job centre... And the woman in the job centre, well, I was on JSA for a while, it was grim. The woman in the job centre was like, take the, the fact that you live in Tottenham off your CV because people will not want to hire you. Really? <laughs> so I took it off and I still get on- a job. I mean, yeah. I mean, to be honest, you kind of hear that, but I'm like, if that, that's probably good advice in a way, but people mm. are so biased. And like, that's not the only name bias study out mm. there. Like, I've definitely read similar ones myself. And I, it's something I'm conscious of whenever I send an email, like a cold email or like a pitch or something to someone I don't know. I think about it every single time. Like, mm. is this going to be an occasion where, like, or if someone doesn't reply or doesn't follow up, I'm like, is it they saw my name and just kind of dismissed it and, and the, didn't really. And it happens. Yeah, the thing is about these things is that the big data, the structural data, like that study by the Department for Work and Pensions, pr- proves it. But on an individual level, you will never know. Yeah. And that is what is so maddening about it actually i think that's one of the most maddening things about structural racism is that any like big picture study will show you yes there's a broad trend that proves that but on an individual level you can never prove it mm. you, you can you can never prove it quotas and those sorts of policies can really level the playing field for people of color and for black people but they're also so controversial and you know what are the common arguments against affirmative action that people tend to kind of put out there well most I would say most people don't see that the living, that the playing ground is unequal. So they're like, oh, it's unfair to white people. 
there may be some like legitimacy to that argument if we're talking about class but let's not lie and say that only white people are working class come on like mm. thanks to income disparity and housing discrimination if you're not white in this country you're far more likely to be working class than middle or upper class so yeah. let's stop lying with that one we know that any targeted policy that aims to work working help working class people is also going to just inadvertently help the vast majority of people of color anyway yeah because they're concentrated in the working classes, usually in England, in mm. big cities. So, oh, what about the white working class? I don't want to hear that one. Also, the white people who say that, who are usually middle class, they're, on, they're not out here doing schemes to get white working class people into their industries. That's so true. But suddenly they care when they see a diversity scheme. They're like, oh, what about the white working class? Well, if you care, do it. But they never do. They literally never do. They only ever raise these things in obstruction. So, yeah, it's like, oh, what about the white people? But it's usually... a and it's a claim based on no evidence. And if you just sat, sit and look at the evidence, you'll be like, oh, yeah, there's a massive problem here. Now, there's one thing that I will say about diversity schemes, um, particularly like POC diversity schemes, is based on the industries that they're in, usually it's middle class POC who get mm. the positions. right? Yeah. And, and that's something that we have to, you know, we have to face. I remember when I did that news paper scheme and I went to the interview it was like a group interview the vast majority of the the kids and we were kids we were all like in like in uni studying were at Oxford or Cambridge or some mm. sort of Russell Group University I was a person who was from a former poly and I made friends with a girl who hadn't gone to uni mm. you know so like that's another thing that we have to recognize uh, there's a problem here I think with like an analysis of, of both of those things you know race and class that don't fully just like see them for the enmeshment that they are. Mm. Uh, and so, yeah, I am pro-diversity schemes and quotas and positive action and all of that stuff, but we have to also recognise who manages, who those schemes even privilege. It's middle-class black people, basically. Mm. I know that the reason I got that is because my mum was fastidious <laughs> in, uh, oh, bless like, her. in um, like, you know, pouring over websites and newspapers looking for opportunities for me, basically. And you know what? If your if your mom's doing two, three jobs, does she have the time to do that? No. <laughs> you know, if your parents are in income poverty and they're just like doing doggy paddle to stay afloat, do they have time to do that? No. So that's mm. that's something that we we really have to consider. But you know, similarly, um, the what about the white working class argument and that it's not flying with me because also even even if you are middle class and black, like. You still got to face race discrimination, if it is, even if it's not class discrimination. So there's a lot of overlappings there. And what do you want to do next? What are you What are you planning? I mean, what can I mean? I'm sure you probably can't tell everything, but what are you planning next? What do you want to do next, career-wise? Well, um, yeah, I think my own publication day. I really do feel like okay, that's that done. So I just felt a bit lost for a while because mm. it really was like my life goal to try and create something that changed the conversation about race in this country. And you've achieved it at the age of 28. Oh my god, that's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but you know the funny thing about the human brain is that rather than be like, yes, yeah, celebration time, I'm a bit like, oh, what next? Like yeah. I'm lost now. So I felt lost for a bit. Um, I'm actually working on a podcast that should be out by the end of this month. So the 
first public the first episode is going out uh, March 22nd mm-hmm. which has been a bit like a extended journalism project where I've been going around collecting really interesting interviews that are almost like spin-off conversations from the book and what's the podcast called for anyone listening it's called about race with Rennie Edo Lodge okay very easy to find yes um, you can find it on all of your podcast apps mm-hmm. um, so that's been really interesting and fun because I've really felt like just back in the seat of a journalist again yeah like it's been remarkably easy to get the interviews with all these interesting people because of the excitement of the book oh I can imagine <laughs> I can imagine um, but at the same time like you know, you'll have some narrative from me, but it's also from people who were there at the time. So, like, the first episode is about um, Labour's election in 97 and all of this, like, Stephen Lawrence inquiry, like, multiculturalism. We really feel like we're getting somewhere with ending racism in this country. And then how... The second episode is how, 10 years later, like, Nick Griffin was on Question Time and the far right, you know, won 12 seats in Barking and Dagenham and, like, what happened between those 10 years. Mm. So, you know, I'm somebody... I love recent history. It's always been the case for me. Fascinated by recent history, bored by by older history. I think that was also the strength of your book as well. Mm. One of one of the strengths of your book was the fact that it it did feel obviously it kind of went back a little bit back in time, but it did feel incredibly current. And the mm. examples that you used were things that I can remember reading about in the newspapers and can remember my parents talking about. And I think that was a really important part of it. Yeah, I, I, for me, it was important to provide the analysis that I would have liked to provide then if I had the platform and that's what I like to do with recent history and this podcast is totally that for the first few episodes mm-hmm. um, there's also going to be like an episode on like the idea of political blackness and whether it's relevant or whatnot that's like a very current convo right and it's something that I didn't even plan to do an episode on but my interviewees just said it anyway because it must have been at the top of their minds so I'm really enjoying that project it's kind of like it's a new form of journalism for me audio yeah I was about to say have you done much audio before I mean I've done many interviews yeah like in audio but in terms of like going around doing journalism in audio form that's been really it's been interesting Hmm. it's been really interesting and then I hope to write another book yeah, I want to um, know what are you. I'm out here fighting for the time to sit down and start working on some new ideas. Okay, guys, stop pestering Rennie with your email <laughs> so she can actually give us another book. What I want to know, last question, just to round up, what are your long term career aspirations? Like, it's quite a lofty question, but what do you want to look back in 15, 20, 30, 50 years' time and see? And also, what do you want to be remembered for? Okay, so long term, that's a really also a very interesting question because I think that what ended up being the book was my long-term goal. Um, so now for me, it's really important to be able to continue to retreat and write and read and think and find and be in challenging places and to just, you know, ruminate on the world around me. Like, that's really important for me. And I want to be able to continue to write my conclusions down in book form. I want to continue to be a writer I've had many interesting offers to take me in all sorts of different directions career-wise, which don't excite me because I love to write. So all I've ever really wanted to do was write for a living. And it's amazing to be in the position that I can do that now. So I'm going to continue to try and make that happen. And I really admire the careers of, you know, people like Tim Amanda or a writer in a a space perhaps a little bit more similar to mine, Naomi Klein, um, who who have succeeded in... um, writing about current affairs in the world around us um and dropping an amazing book every like four to five years like that's what I want to be able to do um and I think it's quite it's going to be quite a challenge now because I am known for why I'm to 
be able to take the background seat that I was was when I was writing why I'm that allowed me to look at current affairs and go around and get those interviews and and sort of kind of not be noticed and ruminate on the world and pay attention to things uh, at the moment the demand on me is to respond in a sort of quite short-termist way to the world around me but I don't think that's the best way I work so that really is my long long-term goal I mean Many a middle-aged white man in the history of this world has been paid to just sit around and think and then write it down. I want that. Yeah, that, I I it. that is a very worthwhile aspiration in life. Like, yeah. God, if only all of us could have that. So, I mean, that's what I would, that's what I would love to do. I don't know if I'm quite there yet, but that's what I, I want oh, my I job feel to like, do. I feel like you're getting there. Um, I think that is a lovely note to wrap up on. Thank you so much for joining me today on In Good Company. And yes, go out and listen to Ronnie's podcast, which should be out by the time this episode airs. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. On today's segment of Ask Otega, we've got a letter writer who dreams of working in advertising and is considering making a pretty major life change in order to help them pursue that dream. Here it is. Dear Otega, I'm currently working as a communications assistant at a small arts organisation, a job I love. I genuinely like and respect every single one of my colleagues, and the work I'm doing is absorbing and interesting. However, my dream job is to work as a copywriter at an ad agency. I recently applied to and got accepted to advertising school, and although I was thrilled to find out this news, I now find myself in a bit of a conundrum. Accepting my place would require a lot of sacrifice. The tuition is very expensive, which means living with my parents in order to save up for the foreseeable future, commuting over an hour each day to the city, and by the time I graduate and hopefully get a full-time job, I'll be 28. It also means saying goodbye to an excellent job, with no idea if I'll ever have it so good again. On the other hand, turning down an opportunity like ad school that could lead to my dream job seems foolish. I know it's silly to ask you what I should do in this situation specifically, but I do hope that you can give me some generalised guidance regarding big decisions, having made some yourself. Yours sincerely, Peggy Olsen in training. Okay, well, let's get one thing out of the way here first. Um, I think sticking with a job, even a job that you really like, out of fear that you'll never have it so good again, is a really terrible reason to stay in a job. Um, So I'm just going to solve that mystery for you really quickly. You absolutely can and will have it so good again. I think it's obviously amazing that you landed on your feet so early on in your career. It sounds like this is your first job or one of your first jobs out of uni. Um, But there are loads of other good jobs out there with nice colleagues and absorbing work, the same as what you have now. I wouldn't say there are a dime a dozen, but there are enough of them that I have every faith that no matter what you do, that at some point in your career, you will find one of them again. So I wouldn't let that kind of fear that you're never going to have it so good again put you off um, potentially quitting your job. And I also think that thinking about sort of sunk costs in your career, i.e., you know, the fact that you've already invested time getting to where you are now is also a bad reason to avoid pursuing a new career path that you'd be happier with. And I say this because I do remember when I first started out working, um, my first job wasn't actually in advertising. I was kind of working in a comms agency and I didn't love it and I wanted to transition into advertising. But actually something that held me back for a while was the thought that, oh, I've already been working in this and I don't want to go back to the beginning 
Um, and I actually ended up not having to go back to the start. Um, I managed to kind of make a, a sort of jump. Actually, my first job in advertising was a promotion into a sort of higher role. But I think in hindsight, I should have been willing to quit that job that I wasn't loving um, and go back to the start. I mean, I'd been working like two years. That's really not a lot of time to have invested in something. I and mean, obviously it's ideal if you can kind of move sideways or laterally, but I don't think at that stage in your career, the fear of going back to the start is something to be wary of, um, although it's very understandable. Um, I think this this letter is a difficult one to answer because usually I'd say that if somebody wants to pivot their career and moving home with their parents is an option that will allow you to, to do that because obviously from a financial point of view that gives you more freedom I would generally say absolutely go for it so if that's an option to you to smooth making a career transition I absolutely encourage you to grab it with both hands I'm also a big advocate for taking risks whilst you're still young you know you're going to be working for the next 40 odd years I literally had a letter about my non-existent pension the other day and it was like you're going to be working for another 40 years which is quite depressing. Um, but, you know, I want to say that life is too short, but actually life is too long to be stuck in a career that you that doesn't interest you when you actually know what it is you'd rather be doing. Having said all of that, I don't actually think that you should necessarily quit your current job and move in with your parents and go to ad school. And I say this because I've actually worked in advertising. I have experience of that industry. And going to ad school really isn't a sort of necessary qualification or route into especially to become a copywriter um and I actually also didn't meet that many people who'd done it there are lots of other routes to being a copywriter and to being a creative in an ad agency and something about your email that really stood out to me is that it for you seems like a very either or sort of decision it's all you seem to kind of obsessed your options as being limited to just these two quite starkly opposed choices but I kind of wonder is it really such a binary decision you know ad school or bust I think it's entirely possible to keep your current job which you love and still become a copywriter at an ad agency and I also think bear in mind that it's entirely possible that having graduated from ad school there's every chance that you'd still struggle to get a copywriting gig but you'd also have a mountain of debt behind you as well um, I think it's especially relevant to you, but also within the sort of creative industries. I think there are so many ways to pivot from one type of job to another that don't necessarily involve going right back to square one or going through a sort of ad school kind of qualification, especially within the media and the arts. Um, you know, they tend to be really fluid industries that hire based on skills and experiences as opposed to specific qualifications. Uh, I think so often when we're trying to transition into a new field and people are trying to transition, the received wisdom is very much to kind of seek out an expensive qualification as a kind of stamp of approval that supposedly means that you're worthy of employment. And obviously for some industries, the right kind of qualifications are important, um, if not mandatory, but advertising definitely isn't one of them. This isn't like practicing law where you actually have to get a law degree to do your job. Same with being a doctor and getting a medical degree. Going to ad school might be a more assured path into an ad agency, but it's far from the only one. And again, I say this is having worked in advertising. It really didn't feel like a prerequisite for getting into the industry as a copywriter. The thing that struck me about your letter is you're already doing comms for an art organisation, which is a really great start. Essentially, what you're doing in your job is communicating a brand story and message to a wider audience. 
what do you think people in ad agencies do all day? Like you're essentially kind of doing it already. Um, and one of the things that you're going to need in your job as, you know, future Ms. Peggy Olsen is a lot of creativity. So I think you actually need to start being creative now and thinking about how it is that the experience that you've got so far can be transferred and is directly sort of transferable into the role of a copywriter and ad agency. Another really great thing is that you're already getting work experience and transferable skills, which sets you a lot of, apart from a lot of people who'll be going for those entry level jobs. Um, you know what my recommendation would be is to start by taking up some freelance copywriting briefs on the side maybe for small brands and businesses kind of little charity organizations places that maybe don't have the budget to go to a big ad agency you know if you have to volunteer your services at least initially or just charge really really low rates or you know I, do you know I know that this works personally because I actually had a friend who worked in advertising but not as a copywriter and not as a creative and he just created his own portfolio and book by setting himself his own briefs um so set yourself some briefs of your own and start building up a portfolio of work that you can start sending out to prospective employers and taking to you know meetings with creative directors whilst also making sure that this is something that you'd actually enjoy doing full time another thing that i i kind of worry about is you might not 100% enjoy this career path. And I think actually going through ad school, making this really major life upheaval, getting this you know expensive qualification, I, I fear that if you then end up in that position where you actually realise this isn't what you want to do, that would be a really negative experience. So I think actually kind of testing the waters first is a really important thing to do before committing to something. I'm also sure that I know the way a lot of these ad schools work I don't think they'd be averse to you deferring your entry by a year and you can then try and make some of these sort of steps and kind of test things out and see whether you actually make any progress over the course of that year. So yeah, some freelancing, I think, to kind of try and cultivate the right experience. And I think a few kind of lateral job moves later and you could easily be in the exact same position in two or three years time as you would be if you left your job and moved home with your parents to attend ad school. But you'd be debt free, which I think is a really important thing to consider. I mean, by all means, if going to ad school is something you really want to do for the sheer experience of it, then by all means, go for it, accept the offer, quit your job, take advantage of the fact that living with your parents is an option open to you whilst you navigate the next few years of, you know, financial and professional instability. But if ad school is just a means to an end for you, I really think there are a lot of other routes into the ad industry that don't involve it. And actually doing the job you're doing now means that you're really well positioned to pivot into an entry-level copywriting role. So that would be my recommendation. Good luck. If you've got a career question you'd like my advice on during next month's show, just email podcast at womenwho.co and let me know what's on your mind. And that's it for this month. Thank you for tuning in. For more career inspiration and information, follow Women Who at Women Who on Instagram and Twitter, or head to our website, www.womenhood.co, to sign up for our weekly newsletter, The Roundup. You can find me at Atavia on Instagram and Twitter. And if you're listening on iTunes, don't forget to subscribe. And as always, please leave us a lovely five-star review whilst you're there. See you next month. TS Radio.